All right. Well, hey, guys. Welcome to our third and final session of Church History, the Early Church. Glad that you guys are here. Um, you didn't float away or get washed away. It's been raining a lot. Welcome to everybody who's watching online as well. Um, we're glad that you're joining us that way. Like I said, it is our third session. I'm going to open us up with uh, a scripture reading from Romans 13, and then I'm going to uh, pray for us. This is Romans 13, starting in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Pray with me, please. Father God, thank you for your word and that your word has been preserved faithfully from the original autographs to now, Lord, from the original documents, Lord, and we, we thank you that we have it and we ask that you would... Um, Open our hearts and our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit to read your word, to understand it, to be convicted and encouraged by it, and change. Lord, I pray that as we study history tonight and people and movements, Lord, that we see you and we see your hand and we remember your faithfulness in our own lives and we trust you more uh, for the future and what it holds for us as we uh, live here on this earth until we go home to be with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, this is the third and final session of church history, the early church. You will have covered almost 300 years in three weeks, so that's pretty exciting. And it's also uh, a little um, discouraging because there's things that I would love to cover that we just don't get to cover. And so I'll reference some of those later, and, and if you want to um, meet with me at any time or get a hold of me, I can tell you some of those as well. But um, I did bring another book tonight. You'll see down there that there's a blue thick book by John Piper. I think it says Servants of Sovereign Joy. I can't read it from this angle, but John Piper wrote several books on people and their stories throughout church history, like The Swan is Not Silent, and that, that work combines them all. I think there's 21 of them into one book, so great place to, to read a little more in-depth than snapshots of people, but um, yeah, great book. So why are we here? What are we doing? Well, we are studying church history. Hopefully you've been encouraged as we've seen how the Lord works in people's lives, how he also is faithful to um, have given us, like I prayed, his word, but also the church, the transmission of the, the Bible. Uh, as we connect to people uh, in history, we see also our connection to the historical faith. Um, a lot of things going on when we study. You guys awake tonight? Are we Okay been asleep all day in the rainy day. For the first time, remember we looked at several things. These are some of those terms that we talked about last week. Um, last time we looked at um, the church gathering together and being together. And I was encouraged because afterwards when I talked to several people, they actually had been moved to think about life and living life with other people and think about uh, what it means to live together in community. Um, so that was, that was highly encouraging. Uh, we talked about baptism and communion in the early church at length. 
And uh, you saw you see our confession on there. That that was that Roman confession, the one that was even before the Nicene Creed that they would say at their uh, baptism or just before it on Easter Sunday. We looked at the catacombs. We looked. We had a little quiz on the paintings inside. Some of you were very good. Uh, we looked at uh, art uh, in churches and. Also, we looked at cemeteries as we walked into churches, and we talked about what that was like um, to see the people that have gone before you and had the faith before you as you went into church every Sunday. We looked at Justin Martyr as one of our snapshots of a person and what it meant uh, for him to both give his life for his faith, but also the fact that we have his writings on what the early church was like. Uh, We defined orthodoxy. Uh, We talked through Gnosticism and Marcion and that... uh, what it meant, and some of the battles against that, and how it played into our Christology, who is Jesus, right? Um, We are looking at the Roman Empire. Uh, You see it divided there still. Um, You now know, again, it's going to be helpful as you get your degree or your class in Rome, you can now know where it is and where Turkey is in Greece, right? We're studying this time period, 64 to 313. Tonight, we're going to be in really the middle to the latter half of the 200s, and then we're going to be in the early 300s, then we're just going to blow through 313 and go about 50 years later. So this is the story that was continued from Acts, where the church went uh, both, or first, locally, then globally. We looked at some of these churches and where they had spread throughout um, both Europe and the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, most of the people, things we're going to talk about tonight are actually in North Africa. You see that in, in Carthage there, the one dot in the very middle. Uh, John Hanna at Dow Seminary divides up the timeline like this. The age of the apostles to 100, the earliest church fathers to 150, the apologists to 300, and then the theologians after 300. And there's a reason he divides it up that way, and we talked about that as to the, the pastoral or the theological content of their writings, even though the theologians also were heads of local churches many times. We're going to move into persecution because persecution up to this point of Christians has been very localized. You remember the the Romans believed, hey, if they don't bring it up, we're not going to question them, but if it comes up, then they have to um, say these things or they will be persecuted and put to death. And that's an important point, and put to death. Okay, Um, Tertullian, uh, coming into the 250s, Uh, Before that, he said, if the Tiber floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there's an earthquake, a famine, pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lion. They were being blamed for everything, is what he's saying, right? Well, as we move into the the middle of the 200s, the Roman emperors become progressively worse, if that's even possible. Um, This is Decius. As he comes into power, he's only there for three years. But he believes that uh, because the Romans have abandoned their gods, that the gods are upset with them uh, and are punishing them or are looking away from them. And so he says, um, we're going to up the pressure on everybody to worship our little g gods. Okay? And that he believed that the survival of the Roman Empire itself depended upon this. So the persecution of Christians became more intense. He says, you must sacrifice to the gods and incense to his statue or be tortured or killed. Okay, uh, A Christian that you may have heard his name before, Origen, um, 
Eusebius the historian writes this, the dreadful cruelties that Origen endured for the word of Christ, chains and bodily torments, agony and iron and the darkness of his cell, how for days on end his legs were pulled four paces apart in the torturer's stocks, the courage with which he bore the threats of fire and every torture devised by his enemies. This was horrible. It was not only isolation, it was physical torture, and it's not even as bad as it's going to get. Origen eventually succumbs to his, um, the things that they did to him, and he passes away. There were three responses of Christians. I sort of got these backwards, but um, Decius said you can um, buy a certificate saying that you recant what you believe or that you are for the gods or both and sign it. So Christians either bought a fake certificate or they falsified one or they signed a real one, right? Or they stood firm for a while, then they gave in and they offered the sacrifice or signed it. Uh, Or they stood firm and didn't do anything, right? You can imagine this. Just just put yourself into this world. If tonight somebody came in and said, you will be tortured for your faith, you will be killed for your faith, um, unless you sign this, what would we all do? You know, what, thinking, hey, I've got a family. Or, hey, I can't share the gospel if I'm dead. Or we should just run and hide. Um, it, it's easy looking in saying, I would, I would have my faith, right? But it was difficult. Um, someone who it was difficult for was a leader, Cyprian. Cyprian is one of those guys from North Africa. Uh, Cyprian, as the leader of the church in that area, fled when the persecution under Decius started. Oh, that's one of those. That picture is one of those uh, certificates that they could sign. We, we have copies of those. Um, he fled, and uh, people were very upset that he fled. They said, you shouldn't have done that. He said, well, I'm trying to lead the church. I want to do it from a distance. I want to still have my influence, right? Um, so the church began calling people who didn't flee, who didn't succumb to persecution, confessors. That was their term, confessors, okay? The people that that did, they called the lapsed. They're going to eventually call them a different name that I'll I'll show you here in just a little bit, but um, this brings up a very difficult situation, right? What do you do with the people or the leaders that signed the documents, that gave things up? What do you do? Are they welcome back? Are they not? What's going to happen? I want you to keep that question in mind. And when we get to Augustine, we're going to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, Cyprian, um, eventually, seven years later, is martyred for his faith. So he goes through all of this for not doing this, and then he, he eventually gives his life for his faith. This moves us into the time period of the, the worst persecution that the church ever underwent under Diocletian. Um, he just gets sort of a little statue head on my slide, but um, you can see him there. Uh, it was terrible. You can see the time that he reigned, the end of the 200s, okay? Diocletian has a great idea that he's going to reorganize the government of the Roman Empire into four different sections. So remember at one time we had four different guys wanting to or claiming to be emperor. Why not give it four more sections, right? Terrible idea, right? So he makes two Caesars, two Augustuses, splits the area into fourths. You can see the colors there, the yellow, the green, the pink, and the purple. Okay? As part of doing this, he also begins persecuting believers horribly. 
he says we want the removal of all Christians from government, and we also want them to turn in their scriptures. Any books they have, we're closing down worship, we're closing down places of worship. Then he begins imprisoning, torturing, killing, and mutilating Christians uh, across the empire. Wallace says this is the worst persecution of Christians ever. Uh, horrible situation. Um, efforts were made to encourage Christians to abandon their faith, accustomed as they were to the relative ease of several decades, many Christians succumbed. Okay, did you catch that? After the time of Decius, things calmed down a little bit. And so when the church, and you're not being persecuted, and all of a sudden it just happens, then uh, you've lived in ease and persecution happens, it's a little harder to make that decision, right? Gonzalez goes on to say that the rest were tortured with refined cruelty, eventually killed in a number of ways. A number were able to hide, and some of those took the sacred books with them. There are also stories of people giving up um, false teachings and false books that they had in their house when they were called, hey, give us, give us the, your scriptures, and they would give false things, and they would try and trick the system. You know, a lot, as you, as you hear about things that happened during World War II and the rounding up of, of certain people, that's what this is like. They are, they are not all killed. Some are tortured, some are maimed, some are in jail. It's a horrible situation, right? But just like when God used Cyrus, who was a secular uh, ruler, to, to let the people come back to the Holy Land, he is going to use Constantine uh, to open up the empire to Christianity. Okay, that's Constantine right there. Um, this slide shows you how confusing it was. We're still in four sections, remember? Um, Diocletian and Maximin abdicate. You don't have to memorize all these things. Constantine's dad becomes one of the four, right? Um, and then Constantine takes over in 306, uh, one of the four areas, okay? Um, Galerius, one of the other guys, dies, and he issues an edict ending the persecution. But that persecution has gone on now for over 10 years, okay? Um, he dies. Right before he dies, he says this, Thousands upon thousands of terrified Christians had to be sure recanted, but other thousands had stood fast, sealing their fate with their blood. Okay? Constantine uh, decides to march and conquer the empire. Okay, so he, he, there are lots of battles. You can read about these in any history book. Um, as, he, as he tries to unify the empire, there's one last remaining area to be unified, and that is uh, in Italy, and so there is a battle in 312 at the place still standing today called the Milvian Bridge. Before this battle, Constantine, who was a secular emperor, is told not to do this. He has 40,000 troops. He is, he is told that uh, hey, the other guys have 80 to 100,000 troops. It's a losing battle. Don't do it. He sends his troops in anyway, uh, and he says that he has had a, he has had a dream. And in this dream, he's told to put the sign of the Cairo upon their swords and their shields as they go into battle, uh, the sign of, of Jesus in the Greek letters. And so you see that at the top of that uh, pendant there that would, they would carry into battle um, and that they will win. They do. Uh, it's an overwhelming defeat for... Um, uh, oh, hold on. Let me get a name. Um, Maximinus, okay, and... He eventually beheads him, carries his head into Rome. I don't know if it had the pole with the Cairo, but carries it in there. And uh, Constantine then takes over uh, in 312 the Roman Empire. Okay? In 313, 
he issues the Edict of Milan, right, in January of 313. And in this, uh, he says this, Our purpose, and and this is the, the edict, our purpose is to grant both to the Christians and to all others full authority to follow whatever worship each person has desired, whereby whatsoever divinity dwells in heaven may be benevolent and uh, propitious to us and to all who are placed under our authority. Therefore, we thought it most proper to establish our purpose that no person whatever should be refused complete toleration. And it goes on and on. What did you hear? You can follow whatever religion you want to follow in the Roman Empire. This is a massive change. This is, you know, the Romans have been there over, over a thousand years. And Constantine says you can, uh, he and one other guy draw this up and say you can, you can follow whatever you want. You see the result on the graph there. Okay, we talk about the church spreading during persecution, and it, it definitely, we have seen the Lord do that through house churches and through things even in our, in our time. But when this happens, look at this. Now, that, that number doesn't tell you, as it shoots up to fit 60% there by 350 A.D., um, what was happening in, in all those areas, right? Obviously, when the ruler becomes or claims to become Christian, he says, hey, Sunday's the day those guys can worship and we can worship, and he starts saying things, then all of a sudden the ruling classes uh, become believers as well. So it goes from this, our Christianity of being um, sort of the poor and the people who were ostracized to being the, the ruling class and both. And so the, the church is going to have to integrate all of these different people as it uh, spreads throughout all the different classes. We're not going to get to talk about um, some of the heresies or the councils that were in the early church. This is after our time period a little bit. Um, Constantine, we, are, we know that these scriptures were already somewhat formalized to 27 books even before Nicaea. So you'll hear Constantine, hey, he, made him, he did Nicaea, he told him what books should go in your Bible. It's not true. I can give you some references to that. But you'll see on the right side there all your isms again. Hopefully you guys studied the isms from two times ago, but lots of isms. Uh, and the main one that we're not looking at there is, is Arianism, right? Was there a time when Christ wasn't? goes throughout the church. Was Christ created, or did he always exist? Okay, there are other ones that you can see on there, but what I want to do is focus on some people. So we're going to look at some people in depth. Uh, Before we do that, let's take a stretch break. So stand up. You've got 15 seconds. Go. Stretch a little bit. Wake up a little bit. If you get too tired, you can lay down flat on your chairs. There you go. You can stand if you want to be like a standing desk. You can have standing class. So around this time period, everybody was named with an A. There's, there's, I used to have four A's on this slide, and then I didn't even have Arius on the slide, and there was five A's, and there was way too many people. But it's not, it's not you know, their fault. I don't know why. So we're going to look at two of them, though. We're going to look at Anthony. Right? Some say Anthony, but Anthony, who's a little bit back of our time period when it starts. And then we're going to look at Augustine. Right? The city in Florida is Augustine. We call him Augustine. You can call him whatever you want, okay? as long as you remember. Anthony is very interesting because as the ruling classes begin to uh, be assimilated into the church and as people struggle with what that brings to the church when the church has wealth or has differing uh, people in it of different groups, he decides to become what we would call a monk, right? There was probably at least one person before him doing this. We don't know for sure, but Anthony decides to go 
uh, out into the wilderness and give up everything. He and his sister, whom he cared for when his parents died, inherited enough wealth that they could have lived off it. He reads the passage in his scripture of the rich young ruler, takes it personally, and sells everything. Goes into the wilderness. Eventually, he lives in a Roman abandoned fort for 20 years, um, seeking several things, right? Seeking um, purity and holiness in his own life, uh, but also from the church, right? Um, this quote that hermits fled not just from the world, but from the world in the church. Can you catch that? Right? Um, there is a marked decline in Christian commitment as everybody's allowed in. Okay? So he is going to be the father of monasticism, which gets a bad name after the Reformation, right? In, in many ways because of the Catholicism associated with it. But in this case, all of a sudden, this is no small movement. So over the next 100, 200, and then 300 years, there are thousands of people going out into the desert, going outside of the cities to live in these groups, right? We're eventually going to see Benedict um, write his rule of order for the monastic groups. You can read Benedict's rule of order. But Anthony is worth reading about. Uh, we know some of his history and have it written, Okay. And I want to introduce you to uh, one of the most important people in the history of the church, and that's Augustine. Okay? John Piper writes that um, in Christian History Magazine, great magazine, by the way, you can get all their issues, and they, their issues are like, here's an issue on Augustine, here's an issue on monasticism, here's... That doesn't excite you. It should excite you. It's good stuff, right? After Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. And that statement is true. Okay, it is true, and I'll, I'll show it to you, but that's not why I care about the story of Augustine. I care about him because of his life story. Okay? So again, Augustine is born in North Africa. His mother is a Christian, and his father is a pagan, a non-believer. He goes to school at 11, and then another school in Carthage at 17. He's very, very smart. He's trained in rhetoric and how to speak and how to give argument. Um, he struggles with sexual temptations. Uh, he has a live-in girlfriend, not wife, that he has a son with. Uh, she ends up being with him for 14 years. Um, he starts reading Cicero and other writers at age 19 in his search for truth. He wants truth, um, but he knows about his flesh. He tells a story, and we have his writings he has a story, and, and it talks about when they stole pears. He said that he and his fellow mischief makers stole bushels of pears from a neighbor's vineyard. We took away an enormous quantity of pears, not to eat them ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs. Perhaps we ate some of them, but our real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden. And he recognizes this about himself, even though he's not a believer. I guess that really is forbidden fruit. It's not just Adam and Eve, right? What emerges is that there was no excuse for the sin committed. The theft wasn't prompted by need or coercion, nor by anything other than a perverse love of sin. He writes, the evil in me was foul, but I loved it. Now, um, I don't want you to miss this because it, it, it impacts his belief on what we call original sin, right? It was in him. He knew it was in him. He then studies Manchism for nine years. It's a lot like the Gnosticism that we talked about, but even more so on um, the body is bad, the body is evil. He teaches at schools, grammar, rhetoric, 
Um, his, he lies to his mom. His mom is great. And his mom is throughout his writing. She's a phenomenal Christian lady. She throws him out of the house. But she has a dream that he would become a Christian. And uh, Augustine decides to go to Rome and teach. And when he goes to Rome and teach, uh, his mom, it says, continues to pray for him, pleads for his con- conversion, excuse me, falls him to Carthage to teach. Then he goes to Rome. She says, don't go. Um, Augustine told mom, go home, sleep comfortably. Then he left on a ship for Rome. Okay, so he leaves her. Um, after she followed, when she was following him around, he does things to try and help in a sense, his Christian life, right? His mom makes him, uh, asks him strongly to get rid of his, his live-in. So he has a son. He's a single dad then in Rome. He takes his son with him. And when he's in Rome, he then goes to Milan. You'll learn these places. Whenever you say Milan, that music starts. Did you know that? Okay. Uh, there is somebody preaching there in, in Milan called Ambrose, another one of the A's. He was actually on our list also. Ambrose is preaching. He goes to hear him because he wants to hear good rhetoric. He wants to hear a good speaker, and he's heard about this guy. And it says that he keeps attending, keeps hearing him preach. Uh, it says that he drops his Mancheism for Neo... Oh, my goodness. So he's still doing the flesh, right? Uh, it says that it's a combination of a pagan religion and Christian religion, he writes that he's deeply dissatisfied with his life. He's just not happy. He's 30 now. Some of you may know this feeling before you came to faith in Christ of being unhappy, and you sought to fill it maybe with certain things. You knew it wasn't right. (laughs) In his confessions, one of his works, he said this, He said, in the very commencement of my early youth, I had begged chastity of God. I said, give me chastity, but only not yet. (laughs) He said, I feared lest you would hear me soon and cure me of the disease of concupiscence, doing things he shouldn't, which I wished to have satisfied rather than extinguished. He said, I had wandered through crooked ways in a sacrilegious superstition not indeed assured thereof, but preferring it to the others which I didn't seek, but I opposed. Right? He was satisfying the flesh, right? Uh, but there were, it says, a day came when I was to be laid bare to myself and my conscience was to upbraid me. He says, I gnawed within. I was confounded with a horrible shame. Okay? So this is his writings in what is called his confessions. And I'll have a list of the writings up there later. He says that I had... Uh, horrible shame. He says that in this great contention of my inward dwelling, in the chamber of my heart, I was troubled in mind and countenance. I turned upon my friends and I said, my friend, Alpius, and said, what is this? He says, the unlearned start up and take heaven by force, and we with our learning, without heart, we wallow in flesh and blood. Aren't we ashamed? He said, my fever of mind tore me away from him, And he was gazing upon me in astonishment and kept silent. (laughs) Smart guy. He said, it was not my tone, but my forehead, my cheeks, my eyes, my color, my my voice spake my mind more than the words that I uttered. You could see it in him. He said, there was a little garden uh, for our lodging, which we had the use of, for they had the whole house. says, the master of the house, our host, wasn't living there. Okay, this is real writing. He's just telling you his story, right? 
his confession of when he becomes a Christian. So they're in this garden. He says, um, I knew that so many things that I did uh, when I was able to, to will, um, I was not enable, I wasn't able to, let me say this right, to be able. Catch that again. So many things then I did when to will was not itself to be able. He, to will means to want to do something, but he wasn't able to do it, right? Um, it says, I did not do what I longed incomparably more to do, which I should do, right? How does that work? So he then goes, that's, my, that's mine, that wasn't in there. How does it work as mine? <laughs> Stay awake with me, this is awesome. He says, I was soul sick and tormented, accusing myself much more severely than my want, rolling and turning me in my chain, that I was wholly broken. And you, O Lord, pressed upon me in my inward parts by a severe mercy, redoubling the lashes of fear and shame, lest I should again give way. You following that? He's in a bad place. And he says, the Lord had to do hard things to me or I would have run again from him. Right? He says, so I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when I heard from a neighboring house a voice. We do have a picture of that. There was a, um, someone had a, maybe a traffic cam. A voice. And he says this, he heard this voice, not a boy or girl, he says, I don't know. It was chanting and repeating, take up and read, take up and read. Okay, so he's in the garden. He doesn't have a book. He's in that garden with his friend. He says, take up and read. He says, my countenance altered. I began to think most intently whether children were wont in any kind of play to sing such words, or if I'd heard that. Like, is this a game? Like, they're playing a game, right? Checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. <laughs> We've heard this before, right? He said, I'd heard of Antony. There's our guy. That coming in during the reading of the gospel, he received the admonition of what was being spoken to him. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Right? So he says, hey, I know this guy 100 years ago. We heard of him. Right? He did that. So I'm going to do that. So he says, I returned to the place where Alpheus was sitting, for there I had laid the volume of an apostle. He, so he goes back and finds, I guess he did have a book when he came in. I thought it was Alpheus's book. He says, I seized, I opened, and in silence read the section on which my eyes first fell. Here's the passage. We just read it to start the class tonight. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, describes his life. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Does God know what he's doing? He spoke exactly to him, right? He says, no further would I read, nor needed I. For instantly, at the end of this sentence, by a light as if it were of serenity infused into my heart, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. I want to read a little bit more because it's so awesome. Lori, you'll like this, okay? He says, thence, he said, she shut the volume. He says, we go into my mother, we tell her. She rejoiceth, sorry, we relate in order how it took place. She leaps for joy and triumph and blesses thee, talking to God, who are able to do above that which we ask or think. For she perceived that you had given her more for me than she was wont to beg by her pitiful and sorrowful groanings. For you converted me into 
unto myself, so that I sought neither wife nor hope of this world standing in that rule of faith. You showed, you had showed me unto her in a vision so many years before. Did you catch that? His mom had been praying for him. He was 30 by this time. So caught up in the world and the worldly systems and his flesh, and he's a single dad, has a kid. His mom had been praying for him, so they run inside and tell mom. You can imagine how she felt, right? Um, After his conversion, um, his mother passes away. Uh, He writes about it at length and the effect that it had on him when his mom died. His mom said, after you've come to faith, um, I really don't know what else there is for me to do in this world. Five days later, she gets a fever and passes away. And then he tells all about her death. His son actually dies before him. But then he uh, is visiting back in North Africa, and against what he wanted to do, they ordain him. And you see this a lot of times throughout church history. People aren't saying, I would like to be the pastor. I would like to be the, the deacon. I would like to be whatever it is here, right? And that's a good thing. They aren't seeking something maybe that they shouldn't. I don't know. But he, he becomes the bishop. He begins leading. And the Lord then uses all of those things that he studied uh, in his study of the Scripture and his teaching. We're going to dive into this a little bit because it's so important. Right? He is going to write against certain movements. And you'll see up there the Donatist and the Pelagian controversy, and we'll talk about that. Um, he's going to write on the freedom of the will and original sin. He's going to write on the nature of sin and what it is on the Trinity. We have his works. Uh, two of them that are really worth reading are actually not the ones I just referenced, but his confessions. When it says 13 books, it's not that. It's, I don't know if it's 60 pages long. But, and, it's, and as you can see, it's hard. I, I gave it to Sherry to plow through, and I think she got through some of it and enjoyed it. You have to plow through these things. It's like reading Spurgeon, but it's so worth I mean, it's just incredible to have this, everything he was thinking. Um, uh, the City of God also, uh, again, where he writes directly against uh, the pagan world. He actually talks about two cities, a pagan world and a Christian, a pagan city and a Christian city. Now, you may have read this in some of your other, like, uh, classes or classics, right? Um, the City of God. You guys can get on that, and we'll, we'll talk about it next week, maybe. I'm not supposed to give homework. There's some of the things that he, he wrote, and when he wrote them, just so we know where we are. We're a little bit later than we said. Okay, now remember, when you see 410, that's when Rome is going to be sacked. That's when uh, Alaric goes into Rome. So the, and then the fall of the Roman Empire would say completely about 60 years after. But remember, he's in North Africa. Okay, let's talk about these. The, the Pelagian controversy, right? British monk Pelagius. Uh, begins teaching, actually a commoner monk is what he's called, um, that human nature uh, wasn't corrupted by the fall and that human beings don't need to sin. Augustine saw this as very dangerous to the church and to the area where he was leading, right, as this movement begins to take over. Um, Augustine saw Christianity as a divine rescue, not a work of man, okay? So when you think... Uh, am I sinful when I'm born? What is the state of man, right? Um, I met with some guys of a, another religion, and uh, when they said they didn't believe in original sin, I was like, you've never had kids, do you? You haven't had kids. Like, kids come out, we all come out that way. He's like, no, we don't have kids. I'm like, have kids, then we'll have the talk, right? B.B. <laughs> Warfield says, the central informative principle of Pelagianism lies in the assumption of the starting and all plenary ability of man. 
the ability of man, his ability to do all that righteousness can demand, to work out his own salvation, but also his own perfection. Okay, here's a slide. And just hold with me, because you've, you've thought about these things before, uh, 1,600 years later, right? Um, Augustine believes that man is spiritually dead, right? Romans 3, Ephesians 1, right? There is no one seeking after God. He doesn't have the first start ability. He has inability to start that process and total depravity. Okay, Pelagius is teaching just the opposite, right? He's teaching that man can start that process, and he's de- denying original sin. Here's a little bit more of what it looks like. Um, Augustine's sin brought death into the world. Pelagius, Adam would have died whether he sinned or not, which is interesting. Excuse me, brought death into the world. All men fell in Adam, or Adam's sin injured only himself, right? Children, Pelagius would stay, are born in the state in which Adam was before his fall. Okay, can you following this? Augustine says, no, the scripture says children are born guilty and depraved. Pelagius says the law and the gospel both lead to the kingdom of heaven. Augustine says no one can enter except through Christ. You can't have moralism or legalism get you there, right? Let me give you a different slide. Augustine on freedom of choice. Follow these three boxes. You've got Adam before the fall, Adam after the fall, then everybody else that are saved by Christ, okay? Adam before the fall had the freedom and the ability to choose good or evil, okay? He could have chosen either, right? He, he, he didn't have a fallen sin nature at that point. After the fall, right, that unsaved mankind, everybody can only choose evil. They can't choose God on their own without God. Saved mankind, once you come to faith in Christ, you can then still choose good or evil. Does that make sense? This is a big deal. Who does what in salvation, right? That's what they're arguing. Um, we're gonna, you'll see this as you go in, in further uh, of Augustine theology. You'll see on there Pelagianism and um, semi-Pelagianism. Uh, and then semi-Augustinism, both, right? But if you read these, look at this. Pelagius would say man is born essentially good and capable of doing what is necessary for salvation, right? That's a popular viewpoint in the world. Either I don't need salvation or I was born good enough, and if I do more good things, I can come to faith in Christ. If I go to church enough, if I do enough of these things. Um, Augustine would say man is dead in sin, that salvation is only by the grace of God. Okay, it's going to go on to be morphed even a little bit as to who takes the initiative, right? Cassian's going to say the grace of God and the will of man work together in salvation, but man takes the initiative, right? Uh, the other position you see there says that the grace of God comes to everybody, enabling a person to choose and perform what is necessary. These are important, important teachings. And the councils that you see are going to have to seek to answer some of these questions, but Augustine writes on these, Okay. Um, just to wake you up, I put a cartoon in. Okay? So, who, who do you think's on the blue thing? Thank you. Augustine of Hippo. There he is. He says, greetings, Pelagius. What are you doing? There's Pelagius. I've been here for hours trying to convince this guy to grab the life preserver. Come on, it's right there. Reach out and grab it. But the guy's dead. Right? And then Augustine says, Pelagius, I don't think It's not funny, really, is it? It's supposed to be a teaching slide, right? What's it saying? It says man is dead in their sin. You can throw that you think the life preserver is out there. A dead person can't reach up and grab it. Okay, yeah, okay. 
A second thing that we're going to look at, right? We talked about uh, Donatist. This is going to get really interesting, right? We're going to go back to our problem that we had with Cyprian and the time of people abandoning the faith. Okay, that is still going on. It's going to go on for hundreds of years after this. Um, so they start calling these people where we would get the word traitor. So you've got a confessor, someone who confessed Christ uh, in the midst of being persecuted, and then you've got someone who was a traitor who gave it up, right? Um, now there's a bigger problem, right? The Donatists begin teaching that if a pastor, leader, bishop, whoever that person is, didn't stand up for Christ during persecution, that everything they did was invalid. Okay, so baptism, sacraments, everything. Because if you did that, you couldn't have been a Christian. You couldn't have. No one could deny Christ. The Donatist would say, um, you know, God says, be holy as I am holy, that God says, cast out the sinner from among you to the church, and we need to purify the church. Okay? Um, Christian history writes, they said that during the recent persecution, uh, many of the leaders had betrayed the church. The traitors didn't deserve to remain as church leaders. Um, the Donatists claimed that the Catholic bishop in Carthage, remember this is before, uh, had been ordained by a traitor and his priesthood was invalid. So they set up their own pure bishop in Carthage, and that's our guy. Right? What are they saying? Your people can't lead the church. Only someone who's never sinned can lead the church. Only someone who never gave in, because not everybody was murdered. Right? Some people were just tortured. Some people just signed things. So they're still alive. What do we do with those people? Gonzalez writes, how purity should be sustained while still having the church be a community of love. This is going to resonate with today, so just, just hang tight for a second. The restoration of the lapsed was one of the main questions of the Western church from a very early date. What should be done about baptized Christians who sin? It was out of that concern that the entire penitential system developed. Don't miss that last line. The penitential system is what's going to lead to the Reformation a thousand years later. That people who sin need to do something about it so that they can get right with the church and God again. Okay, that's where this comes from. Augustine says, The clouds roll with thunder, the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the earth, and these frogs, the Donatists, sit in their marsh and croak, We are the only Christians. Right? It's a big deal. He writes against the Donatist. He speaks against them. What do you think? I want to take a little bit of audience participation. Right? Somebody who um, sort of gives up their faith under persecution or sins and wants to come back in the church or lead the church or whatever that way is. What does the Bible say? What do we do with that? And I know you haven't had a chance to think about it yet, right? But just, it's not an easy question, is it? Right? There are other reasons why they moved in that direction, but does anyone have any thoughts on that? Sherry. That is excellent. That is excellent. Peter would be a, a great example. What do you think? It reminds me of uh, John Mark, who abandoned Paul in one of his missions, and later, you know, redeemed himself and even wrote one of the Gospels. So there is redemption in Christ. That's right. So we have Peter and we have John Mark. I should have just sent something out asking for these examples earlier, and I could have used them. Um, right? 
It's, it's, it's not an easy question. You go, well, is, are people repentant or are they not repentant? Like, are they saying, hey, I, I messed up, I, I signed it. I gave them the Bibles, I gave them the scriptures to burn. Or are they not repentant, right? Um, what about the fact that the, the sacraments come through the church, so that guy needs to be 100% holy and pure, right? Okay. Christian history writes this. Uh, this continues. It, it, the emperor comes in on the matter. This is not Constantine anymore. He dies 70 years before this. Augustine is present to speak at the council. The controversy is settled in favor of the Catholics. Remember, um, as Phil Kemp likes to say, when there's an issue in the church, they call a meeting. <laughs> Still happens, right? They call a meeting, and they say, what does the Scripture say? And they talk about it. And it says, one of the results of the controversy with the Donatist was the development of Augustine's doctrine of the church. That the essence of the church is in the union of the whole church with Christ, not the personal character of certain select Christians. Hold on, that's a lot to think about for a second, okay? So these controversies cause theology to be written down, to be thought through, and to be developed, right? What we see about God in the Scriptures, because people sort of go off the rails for many reasons, right? Doctrine of the church being, little c church, who's in the church? Who is the church? Who is the gathering of the community of believers, Right? Who, who belongs in there? Is it people who are pure and holy and forgiven only? People who are repentant only? Who belongs in the church? He's going to say the church is those who have been redeemed in, in Christ, that they are those who uh, have accepted Christ as their Savior, and they are part of the, um, the visible church. Right? Again, he writes about, Augustine writes about everything. Uh, I, you can't underestimate his impact. Uh, Sproul says it was Augustine who gave us the Reformation, not, because, not only because Luther was an August, Augustinian monk, catch that, right? Or that Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other theologian, uh, but because the Reformation witnessed the ultimate triumph of his doctrine of grace over the legacy of the Pelagian view of man, that man wasn't origin, born with original sin, therefore grace and God's sacrifice in Christ wasn't needed. Um, but catch this. So, again, a thousand years later, they're still reading Augustine. Now, putting someone up on a pedestal like this is dangerous, right? Uh, theology, as we looked at last week, develops over time also, right? And it's sharpened and the Holy Spirit works. And so there are things when you read Augustine that is not um, as accurate maybe as it should be. So we don't want to put somebody up on a pedestal. But God used this man, Right? Uh, it says that Luther was thoroughly conversant with Augustine's writings before he began his lectures on Romans. This is four years before he, he nails on the Wittenberg door. It says it's evident from the fact that Luther cited at least 24 of Augustine's works in the course of these lectures. Did you catch that? People are reading. Again, there's no TikTok. There's no nothing to take up their time. So what do they do? They read the important things, right? Um, no, I'm not bitter. Uh, Right? He says that he, he cites at least 24 of Augustine's works in his lectures, not one work 24 times. Okay? It says, Holy Christendom has, in my judgment, no better teacher after the apostles uh, than St. Augustine. Okay? Um, Chadwick says that Anselm, these are theologians, Aquinas, Petrarch, who always had a copy of the Confessions in his pocket, Luther, Pascal, Kierkegaard, uh, now we're getting into uh, philosophy and people who deal in logic. 
um, all stand in the shade of Augustine. The influence of Augustine in the Western world is staggering. Okay, Harnock has said he was the greatest man between Paul and Luther. Warfield argued that through his writings, Augustine entered both the church and the world as a revolutionary force. Okay, um, Piper writes that he was determined the course of its history in the West up to this present day. Okay, pretty significant words, right? But but backtrack for a second, right? Can God use you? What if you've lived in sin? Right? Can he use someone who's sinned? Uh, can he use someone who has uh, been living for the lust of the flesh? Right? You bet he can. That's the story of Augustine. Can he use something that you thought, I studied this, but I don't know why I studied it? Yeah. I'm gifted with this, but how can God use that? Like rhetoric. Yeah. Can you catch all this in his story? Right? God redeems him. God searches after him. Um, Bruce likes to say, as the hound of heaven chases after someone, the hound of heaven chased after Augustine. Right? But all these stories are someone's life, and they're full of life change. Right? And so, yes, God can use you for mighty things. Right? And he's older even, even as he does some of these other things. Um, we see, you know, as we, we would call somebody old, but he even uses older people. Yay. Right? Um, what stands out about Augustine to you? Just on first read and some of the things that I read, what do you think? Anybody? A single dad teaching rhetoric at a university goes to hear a sermon by this great preacher, speaker of rhetoric. Right? Yeah. Normal guy. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just the faith of his mom. You know, you said I'd love that, and I do. But Ephesians 3.20, that the people in our lives that we look at and think, Lord, they're so lost, just to keep praying that, you know, God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ask or imagine in their life. And she wanted him to be a believer. I'm sure she just wanted to spend, you know, eternity with him also, but probably had no idea the impact that those prayers would affect through the life of her son. Mm -hmm. And that just her faith is an encouragement. Yeah, her son has been used throughout the last 1,600 years and she was praying and having dreams of him wanting him to be a believer. Just a believer. Just sort of the get him, in, get him into the eternity thing, God. And, but he says that prayer. He, they mention the Ephesians 3.20 in the passage, right? What do you think, Brian? Uh, I was going to say some of that, but it was great. But I also think just him coming to grips with his own depravity and his own sin and the way he wrote, the words that he wrote about understanding his sin and introspective or sorry right yeah why do i do this why do i want that do i really want that like he was he was a man who asked himself tough questions and thought about them and thought about where he was with god right what do you think wayne well i first uh read augustine uh confessions and i'm 
started reading it, I'm thinking of my preconception was that I was going to find a simple story that, uh, you know, I, I didn't know how they lived or what to expect. And once you, once you read it, you find, well, their life really wasn't all that much different than what ours is today. And the complexity of thought that he brings out and the problems that he was facing are just as modern as can be, you know. And that, uh, that along with what everybody else is saying, how, how personal it is, uh, that uh, it inspired me to read other very early church writings, you know, like Eusebius mm -hmm. and stuff, and, and you find that, that they're, they're readable and they're interesting. Yeah, when we talked about this sort of, when we opened this three weeks, I said, you know, there's nothing, really nothing new under the sun, that people have struggled with personal issues, questions of theology, questions of faith throughout history. And when you feel like, I only live in this box, maybe I know a couple people that teach things or think about things. No, the history of the world is the history of people trying to understand who God is and who Jesus is, right? And, and their struggles. And yeah, so the, we have writings. Right, that, the Piper book that I referenced down there has 21 different people in it that you can read about. But one of the ways that's uh, easiest to, to grow in your study of church history is to read biography, right? is to read about people's lives. Right? Isn't it easier to read um, a story of someone's life or a parable than maybe something that's just straight theology or text? Yeah. Right? So I think reading biography also lets you see what choices did they have to make, right? If the choice is between dying for my faith or signing this document, what would I do? Do I have a choice like that? Sort of. Like, what if, what if in my job I need, to not, I need to have ethics and be a believer, but I could lose my job? What if uh, we have these moral, ethical issues in other areas of our life that we have to struggle with, and it's not necessarily persecution like that? What if we are persecuted for our faith? What if that's online or in person? What will I do? What does that look like? How did, how did godly men and women act throughout history? It's super encouraging. But you also see God work. It's the story of real people and real lives, right? Um, so again, if I could encourage you uh, to think through what God has for you from these last three weeks, what is he, what is he telling you about your faith and your life um, who he is, who Jesus is, what do you do with all these things? And that this wouldn't just be an academic exercise, right? But that it would be about, about heart change, right? And following Christ more deeply. Let me close us in prayer. Father God, we are humbled to study your word. We are humbled by people of faith. But Lord, we do see that they are people um, just like we are. Lord, that struggle with sin, that struggle with the flesh, that struggle with thoughts um, of who you are and who you aren't. Uh, Lord, of, of mothers who pray for their kids. Lord, of people who you use in spite of their past sin. Uh, that you use people to stand up for you, to teach for you, to love other people, to shepherd other people. Lord, in different ways with different personalities, with different outcomes, because you made us different. Lord, we thank you most of all uh, for sending Jesus the Messiah.
or the Christ, that we might have eternal life by putting our faith in Him. And not only eternal life, but life here through the power of the Spirit. And so that I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us as we think through how the early church gathered, what that means in baptism and being baptized and the importance of communion, of gathering together as believers, of sharing what we have, of hearing your word taught, of studying and reading and interacting with you. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. We are finished.